This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to talk with you all about some of um, how we think about brain aging, cognitive function, how it changes with age, um, leading to um, getting to some of the frontiers, what um, doesn't exist yet, but we hope will soon exist in terms of uh, therapeutics uh, um, to maintain brain health. Okay, and with that, um, let's get started. So I'm going to show you, um, to start off, the same slide that I show the medical students when I give the uh, lecture on clinical aspects of dementia. So um, it's important to know, we, we think of our brains as like these fanciful, the wonderful things that make us do whatever it is we want, but it's not just a great big blobby mass. Actually, um, different parts of the brain are sort of designated for different functions. So here in the uh, uh, what's called the temporal lobe of the brain, um, memory um, circuits are contained. And in right-handed people, memory for words and um, ideas tend to be more on the left side of the brain. And memory for faces and places and directions tend to be more on the right side of the brain. So um, there's a lobar predominance, and then there's a right-left predominance as well. Um, here in the sort of parietal lobe, um, on the left side of the brain, in a right-handed person, once again, um, language is more on the parietal um, lobe. And on the right side of the parietal lobe, visual-spatial. So the ability to recognize that two eyes and nose and mouth is a face. Um, those are visual-spatial functions, which is different from visual-spatial memories. Okay. Um, this part of the brain um, is called the sort of posterior part of the frontal lobe, and that and the subcortical or the regions deep in the brain are involved in basic motor and also very complex motor functions. So by complex motor functions, I'm thinking of like Steph Curry and his beautiful 35-foot swish. That's complicated. Otherwise, anyone could do it. Um, a watchmaker, being able to put together a watch. So those are sort of more complex motor functions. Um, and then a really interesting um, part of the brain is the frontal lobe. And this is where sort of judgment, behavior, personality, empathy, motivation, the things that we kind of think of as being prototypically human traits um, that other sort of lower species don't have, those are all frontal lobe functions, okay? So um, the brain, super, super interesting. Um, we, although um, probably the most common cognitive domain that we think of um, altered, um, altering with aging is memory, in fact, in our clinic at the Memory and Aging Center, we see people coming in with a first symptom that could be memory or it could be personality change, it could be motor clumsiness, um, it could be loss of language, inability to recognize faces. Those are um, all ways that cognition can change with age. Okay, so what goes into a cognitive evaluation? Um, just in case you're curious, um, at the Memory and Aging Center, we spend a, a long time getting a very good history, both for the individual who's there to see us, as well as from their, um, um, their spouse or loved one, family member, caregiver, friend. 
So that's the history. We also, um, because we know that now about sort of the genetics of cognitive change, we always ask about a family history, and we do, obviously, we ask about social history and behaviors, et cetera. We do a very careful physical exam with a particular emphasis on thinking about the neurological exam. And then we do extensive cognitive testing. If that together makes us worry, then that would trigger an imaging study, usually an MRI nowadays. Now, one of the things I think that people wonder is, is age-associated cognitive decline inevitable? Because I think, I think maybe, do, do people think that it's inevitable? Raise your hand if you think it's inevitable. Okay, so a smattering of people, yeah. That's what I thought for a long time, even after I entered the field, at, at least at, you know, in our current state of the art for medicine. And I think that comes from this, these sorts of plots, where um, here on the bottom, uh, the x-axis is age, and from 35 to 85. And then here is estimated memory change. And they're measuring two types of memory, episodic and semantic memory. You can see it looks like it's pretty much downhill from 35 onwards. <laughs> so that's not good. Um, but as it turns out, that's for a population. If you look at any particular individual, the curve could look like this. Um, actually, at age 35, that's not even yet the peak. There's a peak of memory um, in this individual at age 60, and then with aging at age 85, it kind of you go back down to where you were when you were 35. So that's that is optimism-inducing, right? So how do we go from this sort of relentless downhill trajectory to what we would want the individual change? So in order to understand that, um, scientists and epidemiologists and public health um, 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 public health investigators for years have tried to understand what actually contributes to cognitive decline. And we know that age is one of the contributors. We also know that having less education um, from an epidemiological point of view makes it more likely that you'll have cognitive decline with age. Um, comorbid medical conditions like heart condition, vascular disease, inflammatory conditions, those can also contribute to cognitive decline. A big one that's in the news a lot now is repetitive head injuries or concussions. And there's this idea of this thing called chronic traumatic encephalopathy now, which is still a little bit, um, I mean, I think it's true, but there's still um, a little bit of controversy around it. And then, more recently, we understand that there's a big genetic contribution um, to sort of cognitive and brain health over time. So then the natural follow-up question is, how can one increase the odds of successful cognitive aging? That's why you're all here, right? <laughs> so I'm going to give you some good news. There are ways that we can enhance our likelihood of um, successful cognitive aging. The first one is education, both through the through sort of um, elementary school to through college. Like I said, if um, if less education can predispose to the to increased likelihood of cognitive decline, then more education is actually protective. We're not sure why that is. It may be that there are more redundant connections or synapses, um, and one develops a cognitive reserve. Um, we're not sure. Um, Number two, social engagement somehow is good for brain health. 
um, as well as mental activity. Now, none of these are surprising, but um, I, I thought that I should congratulate you all because at the mini medical school, you're getting all three of these, right? You're getting education and social engagement and some mental activity, hopefully. I'll try not to bore you. Um, and minimizing stress is also good for brain health. So I'll tell you right now, there's no test at the end of this um, lecture, okay? So we can all relax. Other things that are good for brain health, good sleep. There's some secret sauce in sleep um, that helps to consolidate memories, um, to modulate um, sort of our brain circuits. So optimizing sleep is important. Um, moderation in food and alcohol. Um, I, don't, I never say, you know, just eat a plant-based diet because I think even though it's good for you, we got to live a little bit. Um, and there are some studies that alcohol in moderation um, can actually be um, protective for brain health. Probably the most important thing on this list, though, and I'm going to make no bones about it, is physical exercise. If I could pick one of these things, I'd say go run marathons or, you know, go do exercise every day. I really can't emphasize enough how important regular physical exercise is for brain health. And um, scientists have been trying for years to try and understand what it is about physical exercise that protects the brain. And there's some idea that exercise causes um, a neuroprotective chemical to be released into the brain. And in, um, there's actually a study that's based out of Stanford where they're trying to, they're in phase one or phase two trials now um, to activate the receptor for that brain chemical. But physical exercise, just do it naturally. Why take a pill when you can go out for a walk on Chrissy Field, right? And then, of course, comes the question, are there any medicines that can improve brain health? And I'm going to tell you right now, I, my patients send me articles and links and questions about all kinds of these nutraceuticals that are on the market right now. And none of them are placebo-controlled trials. And I, what I usually say is, I can't recommend this. I worry that it's someone taking advantage of preying on our fears of losing brain health. Um, if it's not super expensive and it's not harmful, I'm not going to stop you from taking it. But right now, there's nothing out there that I think um, is, is actually worth the money. And, and there are even, you know, I mean, there are all these um, books written. In, and, and for the, you know, the ones that say exercise and stay active, those are good. But the ones that say buy 100 pills that I'm going to sell you, those are not good. Okay? All right. So um, to a large degree, what we're hoping for, though, is a medication or a regimen or some sort of therapy that can um, help us maintain health and battle uh, memory disorders. And for the purposes of education, um, there are different studies, and they show slightly different things. But by far, the most common diagnosis that we see um, at memory clinics nowadays are um, uh, is Alzheimer's disease. This is from actually a UK study, and it's a special clinic. I'd say we're, you know, in the community, it's probably closer to 75 or 80 percent of age-associated cognitive change is due to Alzheimer's disease. Another large percentage is due to vascular disease, so, you know, related to heart disease. Another large percentage is due to mixed vascular and Alzheimer's. And then a small percentage, maybe 5 to 10 percent, is, is um, um, Lewy body disease and these other um, diagnoses that, that we commonly see um, here at UCSF, at least. Okay, so um, those are the illnesses that we're trying to target. 
why don't we have a medicine, right? It's 2019. Um, we've put multiple people on on the moon. We've sent a rover to Mars. We've got pictures of the next galaxy. We've got TikTok on our phones. Why can't we? Do you guys know what TikTok is? <laughs> I barely know what it is. Um, so it's a new app that kids these days like. I don't have it on my phone. Um, but anyways, um, we're so advanced. Um, why don't we have um, any medications? And I don't have a single answer for you, but right now, um, in the pharmaceutical industry, this whole field of dementia is known as the graveyard of therapeutics. Okay, It's where drugs go to die, which is very, very sad. So I will give you some numbers. Between 2002 and 2012, so in this 10-year period, there were 244 compounds that were tested in 413 clinical trials. There was one drug that made it through phase three, um, FDA, and giving us a 0.4% success rate, which is the lowest of any therapeutic area. Okay, so, you know, success rates are low, but in cancer, you'd expect something between 3 and 5%. So this is extraordinarily low. Um, since 2002, the single drug that's been approved is called memantine, an uh, NMDA receptor antagonist. And of the trials, there's, you know, symptomatic, meaning they're trying to treat memory loss or some other aspect of cognitive decline. There were some disease-modifying mo uh, small molecules and immunotherapies, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about. Prior to 2002, there were three drugs that were FDA-approved. They were all in the same class. They all boosted the brain's levels of a chemical called acetylcholine, which helps in memory formation. And I still use uh, members of this class. I actually don't use memantine very much anymore. I think it may have been a false positive. With this many trials, you'd expect multiple false positives. We actually got <laughs> just one positive, and it, yeah. Um, okay. So what's, um, I don't know, you guys probably follow the news. Have you heard about these anti-amyloid antibodies, also known as immuno, it's an anti-amyloid immunotherapy because it's using um, the body's own antibodies to attack um, this amyloid that is found in the brain in Alzheimer's disease. So back in March, there were all these headlines about how Biogen and ASI had to halt their phase three trial for aducanumab, which a lot of people thought was a very, very promising anti-amyloid antibody. Yesterday, or maybe the day before yesterday, in a shocking reversal, Biogen decided to go ahead and submit aducanumab in the highest, doses, highest dose group um, for, for drug approval. They went back, they looked at their data, and they said, we think there's a, we think there's a signal here. Um, and so... That doesn't mean it's approved. It means they're applying for approval. So now we're in kind of a, we'll wait and see. Um, I hope it works. I'm not super, super optimistic about it, just to be perfectly honest. I haven't thought that the anti-amyloid antibodies actually had a lot of terrific science behind them to justify their use. And we've been trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens here. However, I completely understand why Biogen does not want to give up on this drug because um, it takes, it, they'd already invested so much money into aducanumab. 
just to give you a sense, they probably already, they probably sunk several hundred million dollars into aducanumab because it takes so long to get a drug through the FDA approval pipeline. And this starts with target identification, figuring out what you're trying to treat. And I'm going to talk a lot more about targets because that's really important. Um, once you think you have, and finding a target can take 10 years on its own. I mean, I've been in, working in lab for like a decade and we're still, we actually think we have a target. I'll tell you about it. Um, but it can take a long time. So once you have the target, then you have to construct assays to, to identify drugs that will act on your target in the way you want them to act. And then you have to validate it. You have to do all this chemistry on it. In the case of drugs for Alzheimer's disease, that medicine has to cross the blood-brain barrier, which is designed to keep things out of the brain. Um, so that's all really tough. And then that's just half the process, right? Then you have to go through all these different phases of FDA approval, Phase one is for safety. Phase two is for efficacy or effectiveness and safety. And phase three is efficacy, safety, as well as a head-to-head -head against um, something else that works. Um, and uh, just to get to here can cost, I think this is an um, underestimate, can cost almost $20 million. And once you get into these very expensive, very long trials, this is not like... Um, finding um, a medicine for an infection. Those are really important. I'm not trying to minimize it, but you get the infection, you try the drug, you know in a week or two if that drug works with Alzheimer's disease because our ability to measure change, because the change is slow and incremental, the trials all last three years, right? So that's incredibly expensive to have people keep coming back every six months um, for evaluations. And then the, the, there's the dosage, however frequently. It could be every day, multiple times a day, um, or um, uh, less frequently. Okay, so um, it takes a long time to get a drug approved. The good news is there are some other drugs in the pipeline, and I know this is completely illegible. If you really want to see it, I mean, it's just to give you a sense that there are drugs in the pipeline. This is the um, this is the paper that it came from, but it's divided into colors. So um, a little bit less than a third of the current drugs in the pipeline, and this is a little bit out of date. This was from last year. So aducanumab, the the medicine um, that I just mentioned, is actually right there. Um, so um, a lot of them were these um, disease modifying immunotherapies, meaning antibodies against either amyloid or the other bad player. Um, in Alzheimer's disease town. There are also um, disease-modifying small molecules, meaning actual drugs if they are approved, and then symptom-reducing small molecules, and then these are just um, ways of um, delineating what the targets are. And just as an overview, the targets are plaques or tangles of um, Alzheimer's disease. There are a great many to stabilize microtubules, which is a part of the neuron that people think are vulnerable in Alzheimer's disease and then to prevent neuronal death um, through one of um, these mechanisms. Okay, so how did we get here where we've got, we spent um, billions of dollars at this point testing many, many drugs that have not um, panned out, that don't work? Um, I think it's, in order to answer that question, I'd like to kind of take a step back and think about um, what I call the benevolent cycle of human disease research, okay? And I actually borrowed this or adapted this idea from a, um, a guy at the NIH named Kenneth Fishbeck, okay? So the idea here is that in human disease and human descriptors and research, somebody has to present somewhere with a condition, okay? Let's say it's a bad headache. 
Then somebody has to describe that condition. Oh, this person came to me with a headache. They said they saw sparkly lights in front of their eyes before the headache came on, the aura. Then more people with that, you know, the headache, the head pain with the sparkly lights are identified, and you can organize a cohort of these individuals. Then you can identify causes. These people all have exposure to some chemical, and they get these, these headaches. Or more recently, they all have a, a mutation in a particular ion channel, right? You can identify actual causes then. And then you can find the disease mechanism. Oh, blood, blood vessels uh, become dilated, and pain receptors are activated. Then you can find molecules you can target for therapeutics, and you can develop a disease treatment, okay? It's beautiful. It's elegant. If you're really lucky, you can actually develop a disease prevention, okay? So instead of, I was describing basically a migraine headache, instead of a, an abortive, you can find a preventative medicine, and those exist. And there are new ones, actually wonderful new ones, CGRMP inhibitors for for migraines that actually were developed um, here at UCSF. So this has happened for many, many diseases. Diabetes, we have some good treatments for heart disease, cancer, so jealous, um, depression, infection, movement disorders, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, glaucoma. This is where we want to be for um, neurodegenerative disease. But unfortunately, um, even though we've gotten all the way around to here, we have not been able to complete the circle with neurodegenerative disease, okay? And I will submit to you that I think that maybe we've been looking at the wrong targets. I think plaques and tangles are an important part of the disease, but I think maybe plaques and tangles are not what we should be targeting in order to treat Alzheimer's disease, okay? So let me tell you a little bit more about Alzheimer's disease and these plaques and tangles. All right. So Alzheimer's disease was described by, by Alwa Alzheimer. Actually, in 1907, he wrote a case of a pre-senile dementia. He saw this woman, Augusta Dater, I think is how you say her name. Um, she, had, she actually probably had an early onset form of Alzheimer's disease, lost her memory first, eventually became mute, passed away. And then um, Alzheimer looked at her brain under a microscope with these special stains that had just been developed um, around the turn of the century. And he saw these dark things, which are the tau tangles inside of neurons, and he saw these things um, that you don't see in a normal, unaffected brain. Um, they are called the um, amyloid plaques. Okay? So these became the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. Around the same time, there were several other neuropathologists working. So this is Alzheimer that I just told you about, the plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's disease. But also, um, uh, Arnold Pick was describing a form of um, frontotemporal dementia with Pick bodies that are shown here. Frontotemporal dementia affects behavior first. And Friedrich Louvi was um, uh, described uh, the first cases of the shaking palsy or Parkinson's disease. And um, this is the Louvi body. And so these neuropathological findings became pathognomonic, or sort of the neuropathological hallmark of these diseases. And this was really, really important, because up until that point, everyone just sort of thought, oh, they're brain disorders. We have no way of characterizing them. There's no quantitative measure for them. And the ability to say, actually, memory problems give you plaques and tangles, and behavior problems give you pick bodies, allowed those cohorts to be formed, right? So cohorts were formed, and ultimately we have discovered, starting in the late 1980s um, and accelerating in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, we actually know a lot of genes that 
um, lead to Alzheimer's disease, genes that lead to Parkinson's disease, um, gene mutations, I should say, and um, frontotemporal dementia. So we have loads of those genes, right? So then you think, oh, that, the next thing we need to do, just find a treatment. And people kind of took this shortcut because one of the genes um, that was found to be mutated that caused Alzheimer's disease actually was a constituent of these um, amyloid plaques. And the gene was called APP for amyloid precursor protein. And people thought, oh, you get a mutation in that gene, you get an amyloid plaque. We just need to remove the plaque. And that's where the idea of anti-amyloid antibodies was born. There's no great other example of antibodies being used against what is we now know in aggregating protein that it would actually work. Um, and so that's why I'm saying actually the, the basic science in some ways was skipped. We got the genes and we got the um, uh, people sort of jumped the gun and said, oh, let's just develop antibodies. So um, I think a lot now, just in the perspective of neurodegenerative disease versus other fields, and the field that um, we're behind but want to catch up with is cancer. So the first cancer genes were described in the 60s and early 70s. Like I said, the first neurodegenerative disease genes were described in the 80s and early 90s. So we're about 20 years behind cancer. And only so for many years, cancer was treated with a general treatment um, CHOP, for example. It was a four-drug regimen that was used in many, many, many cancers. Nowadays, we have better molecular um, descriptors of cancers, and we have very personalized treatments, and we're getting so much better at treating cancer. So that's actually what we need to do for neurodegenerative disease. We need to figure out the difference. It's, the, there, may, there may be six different kinds of Alzheimer's disease, or there may be more, and we need to figure out what those different kinds are. So we need better genetic and molecular characterization of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease. We need personalized approaches. And in order to get those, we need more basic science, okay? meaning we need to understand these diseases. And this is how I sort of think of where we are right now. We have genes that we know, and this is a very small partial list of the genes we know that are responsible for different types of of neurodegenerative diseases. And then we have the neuropathology that those, um, you know, Louvi, Alzheimer, and PIC um, helped us understand, but we just don't know what connects them. We don't know what, how to get from the genes to the diseases. And many people um, are trying to fill this knowledge chasm. Okay. All right. So what have we learned so far? So this is where it, it gets hard for people who are coming into the field um, uh, I remember coming into the field about 10 years ago and being completely confused because there are so many, there's a huge list of potential mechanisms for neurodegenerative disease. Um, what I'm showing you here is a neuron, and then there's many other cell types in the brain. There's microglia, there's astroglia, there's oligodendrocytes, there's blood vessel cells. Um, we, we know that there are many cell types, and then we have all of these different potential mechanisms some of which we think are acting on neurons, others are acting on glia. So it's just, it, it's hard to know, right? It's, it's really, really confusing. And part of the problem has been some of the animal models that we've had have not been um, the best. All right, so super confusing. So um, we need more basic science because we really need to know the fundamental causes. And I have some examples here of like how we got to cancer checkpoint inhibitors, which are 
amazing, and anti-tumor neoantigen descriptions because of really basic science on cell cycle studies in yeast, cell death studies in worms, and single-cell DNA sequencing, which was a technology development. And more recently, we have had more of a shift towards humanized models um, because mice and humans are just you know, fundamentally different from a brain aging point of view, at least the mice we have in labs. It's a shocking statement, isn't it? Okay. You know what? I mean, we can laugh now, but people thought, I mean, for decades we've been thinking, we'll just learn it from mice. And it's taken a long time for us to figure out that the mice, the mice we have in lab, they're, they're, they're actually a very dumb version of mice because they've been inbred. Um, they're never exposed to any pathogens. Their immune system has totally never been exercised. They're very different from super smart, fast, you know, field mice. Um, um, but, yeah, it took us, it's taken us decades to figure that out. Okay, so I'm going to tell you two basic science stories um, that I think are illustrating where the field is going. And now we're going to think about sort of the cutting edge, what's in the future for neurodegenerative disease um, uh, therapies. And the two basic science stories are around stem cells and genome editing and what I like to call better custodial services in the neurons. Okay, stem cells and genome editing first. All right, so stem cells. What's a stem cell? Do people know what a stem cell is? You can shout it out, and I'll repeat it for posterity. <laughs> it's, like, it's like uh, blood that's type O. It's the originator or precursor to cell. Right? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Okay, so we all know that we're made up of lots of different kinds of cells. Oh, I was supposed to repeat that. You said, um, like, blood cells, it's the uh, originator of blood cells. Yeah. So we have loads of cells, right? We've got all of these different kinds of cells in our body. I put up two charts just to show that we've got lots of different kinds of cells. I actually heard the number. We have some ridiculous, like, we have thousands of different kinds of cells in our body. But all of these cells came from a single cell, right? A fertilized egg. And so stem cells are the cells that give rise to all of these different kinds of cells. They're like the root of the tree, basically. I like to think about how different cells are, right? So this is a neuron, my favorite kind of cell. It has this big cell body. It has this long axon, all these synapses. Um, I could wax on and on about neurons. Look how different this cell is from the blood cells that you were talking about, right? These these. Different cells all came from the same parent cell. So where do stem cells come from? Here's the egg getting fertilized by the sperm. Once that happens, you get a fertilized egg that starts to divide. It becomes a two-cell, four-cell, many-cell stage. And then you get a blastocyst where there's a hollow cavity, and then there's this little bunch of cells down here at the bottom of the hollow cavity. And those are the stem cells. Okay, so we can collect these, for example, from um, fertilized eggs from mice, and then we can grow them. So we take the blastocyst, um, and we actually scientists at UCSF pioneered a lot of this work here at Parnassus. They um, were first able to isolate stem cells, grow them, and show that they had certain characteristics. They have 46 chromosomes. They have special markers that indicate their stemness. Okay, all right. Now there's. Of course, this gets more complicated, right? So there's lots of varieties of stem cells. There's totipotent stem cells, meaning the stem cell that can turn into any cell. 
Then there are pluripotent stem cells, which are stem cells in this layer that can turn into nearly all cells. But early on, the totipotent stem cells gets committed to a lineage, and there are three major lineages of cells. And then they turn into multipotent stem cells, meaning they're in a particular lineage. And for example, this is the uh, mesenchymal lineage, and you can get muscle and blood cells. And there's, um, and I can't even read it. Is that lung? I think it says lung. Um, endodermal, the endoderm, I think, is here, and you get neurons and skin. Um, so there's different types of stem cells. Now, you may have heard of pluripotent stem cells because they're the ones that have been in the news a lot. And the reason they've been in the news is because um, scientists, including one at UCSF, figured out how to make a pluripotent stem cell out of a, a cell that is already committed to a lineage. And um, this is the process. So what these scientists, and in particular Shinya Yamanaka, um, who was working at the Gladstone Institute at the time, did was they took fibroblast cells. So they're, um, these, are, these are cells that are found in many different types of tissues. And he collected them from mice. And then he just started to put um, different types of DNA combinations into these cells. It was a big, big problem. He did, you know, I think he did 10 at a time. He had, I think, 500 transcription factors, so 500 types of these um, DNA, and he did it in combinations of 10, and then he found a few combinations that worked, then he redid them in combinations of five. It took years, but it was brilliant, hard work, and ultimately he figured out a combination of four factors that he could put into these fibroblasts and turn them into a pluripotent stem cell. So he de-differentiated these fibroblast cells, and then from that point onward, you could re-differentiate them into anything, okay? So we actually do this now routinely in the lab. For example, in the Memory and Aging Center, some of the patients we see donate a, a piece of skin. From that, we can grow these fibroblasts, and then we now use commercial um, entities, and they, um, they reprogram the skin fibroblasts into pluripotent stem cells, and then we make neurons from them. Um, but just so you know, Yamanaka and Gurdon won the Nobel Prize um, in Physiology and Medicine in 2012 for this work. That was actually done in the early 2000s, so it was very fast turnover for the Nobel Prize Committee to recognize this work. Okay, so the reason they got the Nobel Prize is that these induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs, have revolutionized medicine. They've really changed um, what we believe we can and can't do, I mean, fundamentally. So um, the question from the front is, can you individualize um, somebody's cells, right, and, and use it? And that's one of the wonderful things that we can do. So the example I have here is someone with liver disease gets a skin biopsy, and those fibroblasts are turned into induced pluripotent stem cells, okay? And these are specific to that individual. You could imagine then um, we could do lots of things. One of the things is if we don't know why that person has liver disease, we can turn those um, iPSCs into liver cells, hepatocytes, and study them. And we could even screen for drugs. If they have a, a feature that's abnormal, we can screen for drugs to normalize that feature, and then we can give that drug to that individual patient. So that's individualized, personalized therapy. Also, we could take the, the skin cells, turn them into liver cells, and give them back to that patient. Let's say instead of um, getting um, a liver transplant, someday we're going to be able to grow a whole liver in a, 
in the lab, and we could just grow that liver and give that person their liver back. I know, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's not that far away either. If we can find a cause for the liver disease and the cause is genetic, we can then, nowadays, we can think about correcting that genetic cause. Then you have what are known as repaired induced pluripotent stem cells. They can grow that into a liver and give a healthy liver back. Okay? So this is, the example is for liver disease. This is what we want to do for brain diseases as well. It is, as you can imagine, um, many degrees of difficulty harder for brain diseases because brains, unlike muscle and liver, um, um, neurons are organized into circuits. Um, and like I said at the beginning, the different types of cells have different functions, and we have not yet figured that out. Um, but um, this idea of gene correction for certain types of genetically inherited um, brain diseases is still um, very much um, possible. Okay, so um, gene editing. It's been in the news a lot. Sometimes it's just called gene editing. Sometimes it's called genome editing. Sometimes it's called CRISPR gene editing. And I want to just do my public service announcement and say that gene editing, which is going to be incredibly important for human health moving forward, actually came from basic science study of bacteria. Okay? These two scientists, Jennifer Doudna, who's at Berkeley, and Emmanuel Charpentier, who's at INSERM in France, she's, she's French, um, they, were, they were collaborating, and they were literally studying how bacteria fight off pathogens. Like, we think of bacteria as, like, pathogens, but it turns out there are viruses and phages that actually attack bacteria. And they were interested in that question, and they figured out that um, bacteria actually have their own form of immunity. And... They figured out all the pieces of it. And it turns out that the bacteria do this thing where they are infected once by a virus, and they take some of the virus's DNA, and they chop it up, and they stick it in their own genome. And the next time they see that kind of virus, they produce the, um, the DNA or RNA that... Um, uh, of that virus, and they use it to basically um, battle that virus. So it's the exact same idea as we use for producing vaccines, right? So we give um, an exposure. So, like, I don't know how many people have gotten the flu vaccine. I, I haven't yet, but I will next week. Um, um, we give a pre-exposure. We make antibodies, and so when we see the actual pathogen, then we'll be prepared to fight. And that's exactly what bacteria figured out to do many millennia ago. The um, com components of this bacterial immunity um, include these, this thing called CRISPR, which stands for clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. It's the way that they put their, um, the, bac the bacteria put the viral DNA into their own genome. And like I said, it's a way that bacteria can fight viruses that they've been exposed to before. It's fascinating. And that idea was then taken... Um, by another fellow, Feng Zhang, who's at the Broad in Boston and is actually a friend of mine. And he's called the Midas of Methods. He said, wow, that's really neat that bacteria can do that. Can we use that to modify human DNA? And then he went and he figured out a super simplified system. So the bacterial system was actually still pretty complicated, had many moving parts. He reduced it to basically three parts that are shown here that aren't particularly important. But basically, it was a Cas9 protein that cuts DNA um, and a recognition signal um, fused to um, a recognition um, 
a, a particular um, um, fold of RNA that helped guide um, this up to the right part of the genome. So now it's become, I mean, literally within five six, seven years, we went from this being a brand new idea to being something that everybody can do in lab within a, a week. It's amazing. It's amazing. In cells, okay, in dividing cells, I guess I should say, is also really important. So nowadays we know that you can use CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing to take a gene that you don't want and knock it out. You can take a gene that's normal and mutate it. You could take a gene that's mutated and repair it. Or there are new technologies that have piggybacked on top of this where you can inactivate a gene. You could make, leave it the way it is, but just inactivate it, or you can activate it. And the CRISPR-I, CRISPR-A activation inactivation was developed to a large degree at UCSF by Jonathan Weissman and colleagues. Okay. Um, so most of this work, now we do this routinely in lab in cells, right, because they divide quickly. We control. We can get DNA into them. What about in humans, right? When is this going to go prime time for humans? Well, the American Society for Human Geneticists think it is not ready for prime time. They put out a, a statement in 2017 um, that has not been modified that they think due to scientific, scientific ethical, and policy concerns that um, genome editing is not yet ready for humans. Nonetheless... If you've been following the news, you know that likely this has already occurred in humans. Um, to some degree, we think of it as rogue science. Others might say something different. Um, but back in November 2018, um, the first um, CRISPR-edited um, babies um, were sort of revealed. Um, and then just, I mean, it's so hard to keep on top of this field. Like two days ago, once again, there's a new type of genome editing that, um, you know, the headlines read, new gene editing technology could correct 89% of genetic defects. Um, we're moving really fast. I think there's a lot of um, ethical, very important ethical concerns. Um, nonetheless, this technology could be life-saving. Um, right now, because it needs to be done in dividing cells, um, there are some applications in, for example, um, uh, childhood genetic diseases where um, repair can be done, for example, on an egg um, uh, or early um, in gestation. I'm not saying whether I agree or don't agree with it. Um, that is not the work that I do. Um, but... It's hard to turn back time, and so I think it's important uh, for us to think as individuals and as a society about the rules and regulations and the governance um, so we're not in the Wild West with genome editing. It's, it's one of the important questions of our time. Okay, so that's where we're going in terms of genome editing. Um, there are types of neurodegenerative diseases that we know. For example, there, um, there's a gene called C9ORF72. It's... Um, uh, a, a pretty big gene. Right in the middle of it, there's a place that is susceptible to expansions. And so it has a bunch of extra DNA in the middle of that gene. If you have that expansion, you get frontotemporal dementia. It would be, um, it would, that would be a perfect target. So for genome editing, if, if, if one knew that one had this expansion, to simply remove that expansion would essentially cure the disease and prevent it from happening for these autosomal dominant forms of disease. Okay. 
Okay, so that was um, the story about stem cells and genome editing. Um, the second uh, story is about clearing the trash from neurons, and let me explain what I mean. Okay, so um, I'm going to show you basically the same thing in two slides. This is the slide I show to scientists at Scientific Talks, and I just want to give you a sense of, of this. So proteins are the building blocks of our body. All the machines in our cells, all the structural support, most of the structural support is provided by proteins. That's why it's important to eat proteins in our diet, right? And proteins have to be, they come out as a, as a linear strand, and then they have to be folded into the right shape so they can do their job. So we think of proteins as being properly folded, Sometimes they get misfolded. Let's say I get a fever. The temperature's not right. Some of my proteins get misfolded, okay? Or there's some sort of stress. I, I get a sunburn. That's going to lead to misfolded proteins. And um, especially while we're young, the misfolded proteins can be refolded. If for whatever reason the misfolded protein cannot be um, properly refolded, then it gets degraded. And there are two major sites of protein degradation. One is in um, a part of the cell called the proteasome. Another is a part of the cell called the lysosome. And we know that age, stress, and certain gene mutations can increase the number of misfolded proteins. And that puts more of a burden on our degradation system. And if one or more of our degradation machineries become um, lost or impaired, then the misfolded proteins have to be put somewhere. And that somewhere, we think, are in the pathognomonic hallmarks of neurodegenerative diseases in Alzheimer's, um, plaques and tangles, in Parkinson's, the alpha-synuclein Lewy bodies, in um, frontotemporal dementia, um, into these inclusions. Okay. So that's what I show other scientists when I'm explaining the work that we do. I actually like this slide a lot better, where we think about proteins as pieces of paper that can be properly folded into origami, right? And then, let's say we've been playing with it too long, something happens that gets misfolded, and it needs to be degraded or thrown away in the lysosome. So this is like we've got paper, and it needs to go through the paper shredder, and the paper shredder is the lysosome. If your paper shredder or your lysosome sh paper shredder stops working, you end up throwing these misfolded papers or proteins into the trash, and that's what we think happens in Alzheimer's disease. Okay? All right. So in this analogy, the lysosomes, which are a major site of protein breakdown, protein degradation, stop functioning. And as it turns out, there are many, many genes that are mutated that have their primary function in or around the lysosome. And so based on that genetic evidence, which is actually the best evidence you can have in human diseases, um, the lysosome is a really important player in neurodegenerative disease. And it's funny, because back when I entered the field, um, nobody talked about the lysosomes. They talked about calcium, they talked about synapses, and they talked about tau and A-beta. Nobody talked about the lysosome. Um, in addition to all the genetic problems, um, uh, associated with the lysosome, aging in and of itself seems to impair how well the lysosome functions. So if normally it can function, it can, it's a, has a set point of 7, but it can go up to 10. As we get older, that set point might get a little lower. Let's say the set point comes 5, and it can only get up to 6, okay? So we know that age actually affects the lysosome as well. Now, there's something really special about the lysosome in terms of the different parts of our cell, and that is that inside the lysosome, it's super acidic. This is um, 
sort of a model of um, part of the cell. This is the nucleus. This is the plasma membrane. This is all inside the cell, okay? And you can see there's different, there's different organelles in the cell. There's mitochondria, peroxisome, Golgi, and um, ER, and then these things called endosomes. Right here is our lysosome, and it is the most acidic um, organelle in our cells. It's, um, it's about the pH of like orange juice or tomato juice, all right? And having an acidic pH is critical, absolutely critical for the lysosome to function. The proteases, the machines inside the lysosome that break down proteins, require a pH below five in order to work. So we know that in certain um, neurodegenerative diseases, we have mutations in molecules that are important for lysosome function. And, oh, sorry, I was pointing at the wrong thing. There we go. There are mutations um, in these different diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, FTD, that impair lysosome function. We also know that aging by itself can impair lysosome function. So um, ultimately, then, the paper shredder doesn't work quite as well. But we want to improve function. So how do we do that? If we think about the lysosome as a paper shredder, the approaches that we're taking in our lab is to is one of two things. We want to either sharpen the blades in the paper cutter, or we want to soup up the motor. And I'm going to tell you how we are trying to do that. Okay. So... All right, so we've got the lysosome, and it's got all these machines inside. It's got these little proteases that are like the blades of the paper shredder, okay? So the lysosomal proteases are like the shredder blades. And um, we've been studying a molecule called progranulin where when it's in its um, um, intact form, it actually promotes lysosomal protease activity. It makes proteases work better. And then it can be cleaved into what are known as cleaved granulins, and the granulins actually inhibit lysosomal protease activity. It's one of these checks and balances um, that exist throughout biological systems. So we are wondering if there are actual drugs that we can identify that will prevent progranulin from being cleaved into granulins. And if that's the case, then we can actually sharpen the lysosome's um, uh, shredder blades. Now, um, we know from studies in animals that the, this process of cleavage of progranulin into granulins is actually important for development. After development, it doesn't appear that we need granulins at all. So the ability, this would be taking advantage of sort of uh, a glitch in the system because actually age and stress promote cleavage of progranulin into granulin. So we want to be able to inhibit that. And this is just a cool model that um, we made of how the granulin um, interacts with this protease. So that's sharpening the shredder blades. The other um, thing we'd like to do is is to sort of soup up the motor of the um, paper shredder lysosome by hyperacidifying the lysosome, okay? So I told you that the pH of the lysosome is acidic and that that acidic pH is critical for the normal function of the lysosome. With age, unfortunately, the pH of lysosomes, um, at least in animal models, and we're working on looking um, in, um, in multicellular um, organisms for this. It appears, though, that with age, the pH of the lysosome starts to drift up. It becomes less acidic or more alkaline. And it turns out, if you look at sort of um, drugs that exist, 
there are many drugs that can deacidify or alkalinize the lysosome. But there are very few that can actually acidify the lysosome. So what we've tried to do is we're thinking about trying to soup up the motor to turn this like little Mini Cooper into like this big old monster truck by adding more juice, more lemon juice, okay? And to do that, we um, developed um, a new technology in the lab um, that we, um, it's a way to visualize the pH in lysosomes while they're living, um, there had been dyes to do this, but we can't use those dyes in animals because we just can't get them in. So this is um, just an image of a cell. This is like one cell right here. And we've got this um, pH sensor that we like to call FLIP for pH of the lysosome indicator protein. And it um, has um, um, it has two fluorescent proteins on it, one of which, the M-cherry, is insensitive to pH. And the other one, this GFP variant, um, has different brightnesses depending on how acidic its environment is. Okay. And this is a close-up of it. And with this flip, we're going to do what we like to call a triple flip, where we're going to study the basic science of lysosomes, we're going to study what happens to lysosomes in disease, and we also want to try and discover drugs that can um, acidify lysosomes. And we've started those screening processes, and we already have some hits. So... No drug, this is the set point of these cells. Vitamin C is actually like the one thing we could find in the world that actually acidifies lysosomes. And indeed it does, as you can see um, um, in this. So eat your oranges. Um, and then um, in our very first screen, we got this promising hit um, that we're following up and we're expanding our screen to um, these larger drug libraries. Okay, so the idea is, is that if we can rejuvenate the lysosome, we could potentially help cure or maybe even prevent diseases of aging like Alzheimer's. Because the problem with these diseases is that the neurons can no longer effectively clear the proteins that they need to clear. And so we're hoping that we can develop drugs to activate proteases and acidify the lysosomes. Um, we actually need to know a lot more about how the lysosome works. My lab is actively involved in that area what happens to lysosomes with age and with disease. And um, one last useful tip is that we know that um, intermittent fasting can actually help activate lysosomes. And so this is this kind of time restricted, it's called lots of different things, but time-restricted feeding, you know, cleanses. The idea is that um, when our cells run out of the normal energy stores, the glycogen, the sugar stores, they start to clean up the inside. It's sort of like if I'm at home and I start getting bored, there's nothing else to do, I'll start cleaning. Um, that's what cells do when they don't have enough energy. So 12 to 18 hour fasts seem to be um, a way to sort of activate the cleaning systems in cells. Um, so anyways, all right. So I'm going to leave you with this thought that um, we've thought for many years that age-associated cognitive de decline is inevitable. I'm, I'm hoping, um, we as a field are hoping, to change this to the population actually staying stable. Um, and with that, I am happy to take questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.